Well, good morning. It really is a pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, this is a delight for us, our first time with Crossview on a Lord's Day. And we are thankful for the invitation to be here. I'm grateful for the opportunity to, to bring God's Word to you this morning. And uh, I'm, I'm also deeply thankful for your partnership in ministry as the church supports us as missionaries in our service, in training pastors and trying to strengthen the global church. Thank you for that. I mean that earnestly. And we are all on the same team, making disciples of all nations and teaching all peoples to obey the Lord and all that he's commanded us in baptizing and all that we do in his name. So thank you for... Um, holding the rope for praying and for partnering with us. I'm also thankful for the friendship and the years we've had with the DeRoshi family. And you should see Pastor Dan after he's had three espressos. <laughs> you, th- <laughs> you think one is bad. All right. Uh, if you're not already there, I do invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians. We'll be looking this morning at chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I want to remind us of something that I think we already know, but it bears repeating, and that is our character counts. Our character matters, and our motives matter, and we can never separate who we are from what we say or do. I remember a time in the local evangelism. We were out one evening sharing the gospel with a young mother, and as I was telling her of her need for Jesus and of sin and salvation, she stopped me, looked me in the eye, and said, why are you here? Why are you really here? Why are you saying these things to me? And I think what she was asking was, do you honestly care about me? Or are you just here because this is what you're supposed to do? Are you really here for you? And... I don't remember, I think I fumbled through a response that was less than adequate, but I remember being pierced by that, and her question has stuck with me all these years. It does bring up a question for all of us as we think about it. Why do we do what we do in our service to Christ and others? What are our motives? Are we in it for us and what we might gain? Or do we have motives that are more noble and Christ-honoring as we minister in his name. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because who we are as gospel messengers will either reinforce or ultimately undermine the gospel message that we proclaim. And so there's much at stake. This is ultimately a gospel issue. As we come to 1 Thessalonians 2, we are invited, as it were, by Paul into a little window of his life and into his heart and into his character and into his ministry. And as we look at these verses this morning, we're going to see that it really highlights the fact that character does, in fact, matter as we aim for authentic gospel ministry. Paul ministered in the city of Thessalonica with Silas and Timothy. You can read about that in Acts 17. And it was not a problem-free experience. There was trouble. There was... Opposition, as he even mentions in the end of verse 2. But there was fruit that was born. God blessed it, and Jews and Gentiles together believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the church was born, and Paul instructed them, and then he left. And then at some point later, he writes back 
to this dear group of people whom he loves. And one of the things Paul wants to do is to remind them of what they already know, namely that he is and was an authentic gospel minister, an authentic ambassador of Jesus Christ. And because of that, they can continue to believe wholeheartedly in the message that this messenger preached to them. So this passage confirms for us the importance of our character and our contact, uh, conduct and the motives of our hearts as we serve Christ and others. Whether we're bringing the gospel to those who don't know Jesus, whether we're ministering to believers or others outside in the community, we bear this in mind, that we should serve others in such a way that they know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we are, in fact, authentic ambassadors of Jesus Christ. There should be no doubt in people's minds. They may not agree with us, They may despise our message and our being there, but if they have opportunity to get to know us in any way, shape, or form, they should know that we are genuine and authentic. We should be able to convey that and certainly have the foundation of that in our lives. Now, we can demonstrate this authenticity, this genuineness, I think in at least four ways, as it says there on the screen, by being centered upon the gospel, pure in motives and character, compelled by biblical biblical love, and blameless in our conduct. And I trust that you'll see that these points come from our text. First then, authentic ambassadors of the gospel are centered on the gospel. Uh, We hear a lot in our day about being gospel-centered. Books are written, seminars are given, everything is gospel-centered. If we are seeking to be ambassadors of the gospel, then it stands to reason that we must be what? gospel-centered. That's just logical, and it's also right. But look how this fleshed out in Paul's ministry. We see in verse 2, he says that, that we had the boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. We see in verse 4, but just as we've been approved by God, says Paul, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. In verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of our God, but also our own selves. And then finally in verse 9, he speaks that we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So we see these various references to the act of proclaiming the gospel to these people in Thessalonica. Paul was gospel-centered in his ministry, and this is just one snapshot of it. The proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified was Paul's central task. Now, he did other things in his ministry and in his travels, But preaching Jesus, the crucified Messiah, the risen Messiah, repentance and forgiveness in his name was the main thing that Paul did. And we need to remember that that must be true of us as well as we are his ambassadors. We may do many things, but we need to be sharing and proclaiming the truth of the risen Christ. If we don't do that, the church becomes nothing more than a community service club. And we do have many of those. So the church is to be distinct in its proclamation of the gospel. And from that is all the good that we do in our Savior's name. So it's no surprise then that when Paul lands in this city, as he did elsewhere, he preached Christ. He he mentions in verse 1 his coming to them. And he says it was not in vain. In other words, God, God did something. There were some results, divine results and fruit that was born. He says, you yourselves know, brothers... That our coming to you was not in vain, 
But though he'd already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. You can read about this in Acts 17, verses 1 through 9, Paul's experience there in, in the city of Thessalonica. There was hardship and conflict, but there was spiritual fruit born. Paul mentions the mistreatment uh, in verse 2 there at Philippi, and that's where he was prior to coming to the city of Thessalonica. And that was the whole incident, incident there of Paul and Silas being put in prison for preaching the gospel, and the jailer ends up getting saved, and all this good comes out of it for he and his household, and the good things happened, yet it was through and by means of hardship and suffering and opposition. And so that was true for Paul. We shouldn't be surprised when that happens to us. Now, it may not be prison, but then again, it could be, given the way things are going in our culture. Who knows what could happen? And when that hardship happens, how will we respond? How is that going to impact us? Well, we see for Paul, contrary to what would be normal, this opposition and this conflict produced in him boldness to continue declaring the gospel of God. So all the trouble in Philippi did not squelch him. Instead, it, infu- it fueled him to be bold and courageous to continue on in the next city he went. Isn't that amazing? It didn't come from Paul himself. It came from God's work in him. And that's why he says we had boldness in our God to preach to you and to proclaim to you, even though, even, even though in Thessalonica, just like in Philippi, there was opposition and there was trouble. You find yourself ever scared and intimidated to open your mouth and be faithful to share Jesus with someone? I, I still do. We need to pray for boldness. We need to pray for boldness, that God would make us courageous, even in the midst of conflict. Honestly, you know what sometimes the conflict is? Just that sense that they don't like us. That sense that it's awkward. And that sense that their estimation of us might have been lowered. For most of us, that's enough to, to lay us low, isn't it? May God spur us on with courage and boldness. So uh, as an authentic minister of the gospel, as an ambassador of Christ, this should be true of us, this gospel-centeredness. Secondly, we need to be pure in our motives and character. And we'll spend a, a bulk of time on this point here. Paul begins to describe and defend himself in his ministry. He says in verse 3, for our uh, appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ." Paul begins to to share with them, this is who I am. And the interesting thing is, is he's not giving them new information. He's actually just simply reminding them of what they already know. They were firsthand witnesses of Paul's character and his uh, conduct. Notice, he says in verse 1, all these references to firsthand knowledge. He says, for you yourselves know. Verse 2, he says, as you know. Again, verse 5, as you know. Verse 9, for you remember, brothers. Verse 10, 
He says, you are witnesses. And then he finishes in verse 11 again, for you know. So everything he's saying to them, regardless of how the opponents are undermining Paul and his character and credibility, everything he's saying to them is what they already know to be true because they had experienced Paul's ministry in their midst. They knew the man. I think it's a good moment for us to stop and ask, could, could we appeal to firsthand knowledge that others might have of us if we needed to? And, and would that be a good thing? Or would that be a, a hindrance to what we're trying to do? Could we appeal to someone and say, you, you know, you know me, you know my conduct, you know how I've acted, you've seen me over the long haul. And would that help us? It did for Paul. See, we live, don't we, as advertisements for our Savior. People are reading our lives, and we should be able to appeal in those moments when it's necessary to their knowledge of who we are deep within, our character. We, uh, we see as we get into verse 3, Paul's going to highlight this by making contrasts. He's contrasting himself with the itinerant, traveling philosophers and teachers of his day, those who were insincere and out for personal gain. Notice he says in verse 3, our appeal, in other words, our message to you, uh, it didn't spring from, and he lists three things, error, impurity, and an attempt to deceive. So the first thing he mentions is error. We didn't come to you in error. In other words, we preached truth to you, biblical truth. It's true because it came from God. The source wasn't us. It's a divine source, a divine message, and we're uh, compelled by God to share that message. Uh, how do you spot a false teacher? Know your Bible and be a good Berean and compare what they're saying to what God says. Don't be impressed with all the bells and whistles and fancy things. What are they saying? Is it true? Is it true? Paul says, we spoke not from error, but from truth. Secondly, he says, our appeal, our gospel appeal did not spring from impurity. We weren't impure people. We were living holy lives. Remember what Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. Follow the trail of a false teacher, a spiritual imposter, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Follow that trail and you'll very often find a lifestyle and a pattern of impurity. Sexual immorality. The New Testament even warns us against this. Jude 4 says certain people have crept in unnoticed, ungodly people, false teachers, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And later he says they follow their ungodly passions. That's what they do. Second Peter chapter 2 describes them as those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. Uh, you know, sometimes this hits home. We just had a pastor in our local community, well-known church, big church, thriving, everything's going well, and it, was, and it came out that he was uh, guilty of sexual misconduct. Previously, uh, earlier on in his ministry, it had been covered up, and, and so it came out. It was an impure shepherd who uh, had some serious things going on in his life. And you know, it, this is all playing out right now still, but it's going to impact the church. The sheep are going to get wounded, and it's a terrible thing. As servants of the living God, we need to take to heart the command to be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. 
Whoever you are this morning, young person, teenager, young adult, middle-aged Christian, older saint, determine in your heart afresh and again that I will seek by God's grace and with his help to live a holy life. I will take, keep close accounts on my life and measure it against Scripture and have others speaking into my life to be the kind of person that God has called me to be because the gospel's at stake, the name of Christ is at stake, the church is at stake. There's no place for impurity amongst God's servants. So God help us to be authentic ambassadors for Christ, and that involves purity in our character and conduct. Paul mentions deception there. Again, another mark of a false teacher. Paul warns against those who would creep into the church. He warns Timothy in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, be careful of those who creep in to households and capture, Paul says, weak women burdened with sins. In other words, they knock on the door for pastoral counseling, but beware, they have other motives in mind. Spiritual deceit is a terrible and damaging thing. It ruins lives and churches, and Paul would have none of it. And he strongly warns against us, against it. And so in stark contrast to this error, to this impurity, and this intent to deceive these three negatives, Paul says this positively about himself in verse 4. He says, we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So he says we've been approved by God. In other words, God has stamped us. He's, he's put us through the furnace of testing, and we've been approved, we've been called, we've been commissioned, and our ministry flows from this. We didn't just decide one day to go out and do what we do. We have God's approval. And because of that, he's given us a treasure. We've been entrusted with the gospel. We also have been entrusted with the gospel. The gospel is not just good news, it's glorious news. And it's a treasure, and Paul treated it as such. He viewed it as a stewardship of this magnificent treasure, and he shared that with others. And if that's true, approved by God and given a treasure, then the third thing is obviously true, that his motive was not to please man, but to please God, the God who had called him and the God who tests his heart. Being... uh, a God-pleaser will save us and spare us of many a troubles. Proverbs warn about the snare of pleasing man. Author Ed Welch says in his book, when people are big and God is small, he says, who or what you worship, or I'm sorry, who or what you need will control you. Who or what you need will in the end eventually control you because it becomes your idol and you have to have it. And you'll cater your life and your message and anything else in order to get what you need. And if you need the approval of people, beware. Paul understood this. He told the Galatians, am I now trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, says Paul, I would not be a servant of God. So it's a reminder to us all, we need to resolve to live so as to please God, not to please man. It's part and parcel of what it means to be a genuine servant of the Lord and an ambassador of Christ. Now, Paul's not finished making contrasts, and so we move on to verse 5 and verse 6. Notice here in verse 5, he once again appeals to their knowledge of him. He says, you know, you know. and he says, you know I was not a flatterer. I didn't come to you with words of flattery. In other words, he, he, he didn't have a stick of butter with him, buttering people up in order to have them receive his message or to gain something from them. 
And that's, just, that's what distinguishes flattery from, from a normal, genuine encouragement of compliment. Flattery seeks to gain something for yourself. You don't have their best interest in mind. You have yours in mind. And you want approval or you want admiration or you want personal advancement or some other gain. And so you'll use words and flattery to get it. And Paul says, we had, we had nothing to do with that. We came and we spoke the truth. We were pure and we didn't flatter. He says, we didn't come with a pretext for greed. In other words, we didn't use preaching as a means of gain, monetary gain. One of the things we see over and over again as we interact with our pastors in Africa is the pervasive prosperity teacher who is drawing huge crowds and gaining a large amount of money in very poverty-stricken areas and cities. It's amazing. Over and over again, that's the biggest thing they fight against. And that's why we go and we try to train pastors in the Word of God so they can refute this type of thinking. And Paul highlights right here the danger of it. We didn't come for greed. We didn't use church and Jesus and the Bible as a means to pad our own pockets. He says, nor did we seek glory from people. This goes back in line with what he said in verse 4. We, we want to please God, not people. We weren't seeking the admiration of others. And so we, we didn't want their money. We didn't want their praise. We just wanted them. We wanted them in their hearts to turn to Christ and to be a child of God. So that's what Paul's perspective was. He wanted Christ to increase and himself to decrease. May that be our heart as well. Do not seek a name for yourself in service to Christ. Now, I know we would never say that, but it's the seeds of it in our, are in our heart. We can turn a good thing into a bad thing by motives, wrong motives, seeking glory for ourselves. We need to aim to not do that. As I said in the first service, it's like bad cologne. We don't smell it, but other people do, and they can tell when our motives are not what they should be. Authentic gospel servants, they're centered on the gospel, pure in motives. Thirdly, they're compelled by selfless love. We see this in 7 through 9. Paul says, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. After stating all these various negatives, Paul now shifts to the positive. He says, this is, this is what we were. Not what we weren't, but this is what we were and how we conducted ourselves. And he paints this beautiful picture. He says, first, we were gentle. We were gentle among you. In fact, the illustration I'm going to use is as gentle as a nursing mother. Can you think of anything more beautiful than that? Gentle, loving, nurture, care. It's the epitome of all of that, 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 the beauty that happens as a baby nurses in his mother's arms. What, a, what an image. And Paul turns to that and says, this is the way we conducted ourselves amongst you. Paul is giving us a glimpse into his heart. He was gentle. No false motives, no manipulation, no harshness. Over the years, I've seen, uh, been around many gifted pastors, people in ministry, and they were very good leaders, and they built a big enterprise, but they were not gentle, and they ended up hurting themselves and their churches. God's shepherds must be gentle people, 
hearts full of love. In fact, he goes on to describe that love in verse 8. He says, we loved you so much, we not only were willing to boldly share the gospel with you, even though it was in conflict, remember back to verse 2, we, uh, we were so affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. In other words, our own lives. Why? Because you had become very dear to us, he says at the end of verse 8. Paul had a big heart. He genuinely loved the people. And that's a challenge for us because we can go about the actions and the busyness of ministry, but somehow our hearts have become cold to the people to whom we're ministering. And that wasn't true of Paul. So think of, think of the spheres of ministry, service, influence you have. Maybe it's children, maybe it's youth, small group. Maybe it's serving people in your community in various capacities, evangelism. Think of your own family. Think of the church family. And I encourage you to take verse 8 and hold that up to yourself as a mirror and say, Lord, how am I doing? Am I cultivating Christ-like affection for those that I serve? Am I appreciating them as people made in the image of God? Do they sense that? Am I following Paul's example and spending myself for their sakes? Or do they just get a sense that this is duty? This is, there's no delight in it. It's just duty. Take verse 8. Hold that up to yourself as a mirror. Biblical love moves us to action. Action to serve and to give our lives for others. One of my favorite verses in a sense because it, it, it's... It's the standard that I, I seek to aim for with God's help is 2 Corinthians 12, 15. As we think about other people, Paul says this, I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. You hear that? Sacrificial, loving heart of Paul. I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I'll go home tired. I'll do without. I'll do whatever it takes for your sake. And that was Paul's ambition out of love. He was compelled by love, Christ-like love for others. Now, let's look at the last mark of authentic ambassadorship, verses 10 through 12. Genuine servants of the gospel are blameless in conduct. Now, these verses were read for us earlier in the service. For Paul, he could point to the fact that he was blameless in his conduct Not perfect, but blameless. In other words, there was no charge against him that could stick. He lived a holy life. Paul conducted himself in righteousness and in holiness before others. No, he wasn't perfect. No, we are not perfect. But no one could say, aha, you're disqualified, Paul, and here's why. See, everyone sees it. And that's what we need to aim for in our lives. No one should be able to say, you are disqualified because of this. And everyone around you knows it. And that's what it means to be blameless. No one can do that for us. They might say, sure, look, brother, here's an area I want to help you work on. And uh, we're all growing. We're all at a different spot in our sanctification. That's, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about lack of blamelessness in our lives that disqualifies us. And or causes those to whom we minister to, to look at us and say, you are a hypocrite. I don't want anything to do with you because I can see right through you. We undermine the gospel we preach if we're not living what we preach. And that's Paul's point. We undermine the gospel we preach if we do not live what we preach. And so he tells Timothy, Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself. 
and your teaching, 1 Timothy 4.16, Timothy, keep a close watch on your life and your teaching. May God give us the grace to never cease to keep a close watch on our lives. And may he give us the determination to do that as well. A failure in biblical holiness is a failure at the most fundamental levels. It will unravel your credibility before others and it will undermine the very gospel that you're preaching and or trying to manifest towards other people. Now, earlier in the passage, Paul described himself as a gentle mother. Verse 7, uh, I'm sorry, here in verse 11, he describes himself as a father, as a strong father who exhorts and charges. He says, uh, you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted you, verse 12, each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of God who calls you, I'm sorry, to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So the image here is of Paul as a father with strength, with purpose, with determination, charging others to walk worthy of the calling. He could do that because he himself was walking worthy of God. Paul elsewhere says, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. In other words, live for the Lord. Don't be lukewarm, be hot or cold. And if you're determined to serve Christ, then live for Christ. This is the spiritual father charging his sons in the Lord. It's not a call to clean your life up in order for God to accept you. It's a call to say, through the gospel, I have been accepted and been given a new heart and have the capacity now to live worthy. So by God's grace, let me do so, Lord, for your sake and for the good of others. As a minister of the gospel, Paul considered it his role to exhort and to encourage and to implore. And I think we can do that too. That ought to be part, if I could say it this way, part of our toolbox as we seek to minister to others. And so if you're married, seek to do that for your spouse. There are those moments, sweetheart, let's walk with the Lord in holiness. If you have children, don't neglect encouraging and exhorting your children to walk firmly with Jesus. They need encouragement. They need example. You're part of a local church body. Encourage one another that way. We need each other on this challenging but blessed road of Christian living. It's a crucial part of serving other people that we have this element of exhortation and encouragement and strengthening. We, uh, we have here in this chapter a very precious personal window in the Apostle Paul's life. We see what an example this man was. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Everything we've talked about today for Paul can be true of us through the Spirit's work in our lives. Paul's example is not unattainable. It's what we all ought to be striving for with the Lord's help. Who we are matters. As I've said, our motives matter. Our speech matters. How we live matters. And all of this will add up to either a genuine, authentic servanthood for Christ, or it's going to add up to something less than that. Perfection is not the issue, of course, or we would all be disqualified, but the overall pattern and tone and flavor of our life is. Someday, if it hasn't happened to you already, someone's going to look at you like happened to me, and they're going to say, why are you here? 
why are you talking to me? Do you really care about me? They may not say it in those words, but they're thinking it. In that moment, you're going to want to have a clear conscience. And you're going to want to say, look, I know I'm not a perfect person, but in your heart and of hearts and what you might even share with them is, I think I'm living the way the Lord would want me to. Can I, can I share with you about what Jesus has done in my life? And nothing that you're going to share with them is going to be in such a stark contrast to how you're living because your conduct matches, your character matches your message. And that's the goal that we all work towards. One day, you will want the joy and the peace and the clear conscience of that if you haven't already. So be genuine, be real. And this is what we're aiming for. May God help us to serve him with new resolve and in a spirit of of authentic gospel servanthood. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. It is challenging for us because we see our warts and our failures, and yet we know that in Christ we are cleansed and we are forgiven, and we have the strength and the capacity and the, the spirit within us now to be the people you want us to be. Help us to walk closely with Christ. And Lord, help us to help one another do so, for we need each other. May your spirit be pleased to bear his fruit in our lives, such as love and gentleness, and may we walk blamelessly before you. Lord, for your glory, first and foremost, and for our own good and for the good of others to whom we serve. May Jesus be praised. In his name we pray.